Welcome. You've joined the Hedonism Show with Carol and David, broadcasting live from the world's most iconic adult playground Hedonism 2 on Negril Beach in Jamaica. Our show is here to help you achieve better, better love, better sex, and a better, more intimate relationship. Are you ready? Take notes and send us your questions. This is the Hedonism Show. Now, here are your hosts, Carol and David. Hi, everyone. We're Carol and David, and welcome to the Hedonism Show. While we're doing our part, staying home to flatten the curve, we are missing our favorite sexy resort, Hedo 2 on Negril Beach in Jamaica, and we can't wait to get back there again. But we are happy that we can share a little Jamaican vibe right here on the Hedonism Show. Absolutely. And before we get going, we want to shout out to all our Jamaican friends and family from Hedonism 2 in Jamaica. We want to shout out, of course, to Harry and Kevin and Donna and Winston and Chef Anthony and all the other amazing people who make everybody's vacation at Hedo 2 as, maz- as amazing as it always is. We hope they're all safe and healthy at their homes in Jamaica. And, of course, we can't wait to get back to the world's most iconic adult playground. It's an all-inclusive paradise where you can turn your fantasies into reality. And, oh, my God, have we turned some of our fantasies into realities the many times we've been at Hedo. It really is the sexiest place on Earth where you can get wicked for a week and be as mild or as wild as you like. The Hedonism Show is all about the pursuit of pleasure. And, as usual, we'll be talking about sex, sexuality, relationships, and all the ways to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny. So, are you ready to open a new chapter in your relationship and explore the world of non-monogamy? Is the idea of it exciting and terrifying at the same time? Well, you're not alone. On today's show, we're going to talk with a writer who was working on her new book about non-monogamy, sex, and gender, as she shares her experiences at Hedo 2 that helped her discover a new path to sexual freedom, openness, and personal empowerment. And before we get going, let's just take a moment to talk about our top waterproof blanket because everybody should continue to have great sex now more than ever. If you're fed up with sleeping in the wet spot or having to change your sheets every time you have sex, then you need one of our top waterproof blankets. It's 100% waterproof and leak-proof, and it guarantees to keep your bed and mattress dry no matter how wet it gets. From messy massage oils to silicone lubes or any other sexy wetness, just throw it in the washer and dryer, and it comes out looking like brand new. And you don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply and safely go to Amazon and order yours today. Search Top Waterproof Blanket. That's T-O-P Waterproof Blanket. Great sex starts now. It sure does. And so does today's show. You know we're Carol and David. You know this is the Hedo Show. And we are so excited to introduce and welcome today's special guest. Rachel Kranz is a writer currently working on a book about non-monogamy. She's the namer of Bustle and one of its three founding editors. She sure is, and she had a great adventure at Hedo 2 a little while back, and she's going to tell us all about it later on in the show. But first, Rachel Kranz, welcome to The Sexy Lifestyle. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day while you're in self-quarantine, and welcome to our show. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, the most exciting thing that's happened in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You don't have any sex toys or things like that that you've been, you know, having a little Uh, bit of excitement? Yeah, I should give my boyfriend credit. We do a lot of role playing, but I guess I mean with other people. 
<laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. I mean, we've been in the same situation. We definitely mess, miss our swinger friends. We were supposed to be at Hedo three times since this uh, unfortunate pandemic started. And, um, you know, we're just doing the best that we can um, in our life. We've had some great sex together. We'll talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> That's for sure. But tell us a little bit of your current situation during isolation and, you know, how it's affected your life and your sex life and just doing things. Sure. Um, well, I'm here hunkered down with my boyfriend and he actually moved in more officially at the beginning of quarantine. And that was kind of an interesting thing for us because we were living apart before this and I was sort of um, very adamant about living alone. And when this happened, it just felt very clear that I wanted to be together and that I uh, didn't want him to have to risk being around roommates. And so we sort of started living together under these interesting conditions and I feel really lucky that it's been working out as well as it has um, because I think it could have been just a real shock to the system. Um, but, you know, these things have a way of really clarifying how you feel and what's important. And uh, so we've just been really enjoying ourselves, having uh, a lot of, I think it, you watch it go through phases, you know, like it, in the beginning it felt almost like end of world sex. I don't know if you guys had any of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Turns out it's pretty hot. Um, and then you sort of settle into your new normal. And uh, for us, that means still a lot of um, massages because I'm lucky he's a massage therapist and experimenting with a lot of role playing and also finding ways to maintain um, you know, some distance and novelty within a situation where it's really just us every day, all the time, and and kind of being deliberate about, you know, building that in occasionally, not thinking there's anything wrong with with wanting that. I think a lot of times people think if you have, if you want any distance in any way, um, that that must be something wrong. But I think Dan Savage has talked a lot about how important that actually is, and so I try to remember that too. Beautiful. Well, we're going to get into your sex life and our Great Sex Matters segment later on in the show. Um, but first, let's back up a whole bunch of years. And Okay, and tell us about your journey into becoming the founding editor of Bustle.com. Yeah, so I was one of, one of the founding editors, and um, it was real stroke of luck that I was, you know, luck meeting some skill, I guess, that I was recruited. Um, they were looking for young voices with some experience who are willing to take a risk. And I thought the idea of starting a new website sounded exciting and it was pretty uh, open. It didn't even have a name yet. And I liked the idea of coming up with a name and helping come up with um, a vision for a sort of feminist website that would reach a much uh, wider audience than perhaps some of the other um, explicitly feminist websites were able to. Um, and so that's how it started. And I kind of watched it grow and grow from there with um, a lot of pride, a lot of mixed feelings. And it was it was quite a, a journey of several years. And what are, are the other founding members also female? Yes. Um, all, all the editorial for a very long time was entirely uh, female and during your time that you were there what was like one of the favorite articles that you did that really 
taught you something or, or changed your life a little bit? Mm. Well, I mean, I guess since we're talking about it, I, I, I could mention the, the one I was naked for four days and here's what happened. That was a, a fun one. I don't think it's my favorite piece of writing necessarily that I've, I've done there, but um, it was one that got a lot of response and it was about my experience at, at HEO um, and kind of also, you know, I, I posted some pictures of myself. It was very exhibitionist, but in so doing, you know, kind of liberating in that I felt like hopefully I was giving permission for some other um, people in the who were reading the article to maybe consider that going to Hito or a nudist resort or a lifestyle resort was something that they could consider that it you know wasn't something just for swingers necessarily but something that might really have the ability to um, be a really memorable experience absolutely Very cool. well in the second sec in the second segment of our show we're going to get into your trip at hedonism and you're going to tell us all about the different adventures and stuff and your experience in the playroom for the first time but like us um you had a podcast for a while didn't you yeah i did um it was called honestly though uh while i was at bustle and i plan to be relaunching it um not too long under a different name but a similar format and it was really it was kind of like uh fresh air meets i don't know uh savage love or something it was (laughs) interviews conversations uh on taboo topics most of them around uh non-monogamy or people otherwise on the uh sexual fringes and, and really delving into what their stories were and having a, a conversation around them that was not judgmental. So I talked with, you know, one woman who had two boyfriends about what that's like. I talked with um, another woman who was uh, plus size about the realities of being with a very thin man. Um, so all kinds of topics that maybe you don't hear about in depth as uh, at least from a mainstream podcast or, or source. And it was fun. I got, I got to really push the envelope a little bit for a while there in terms of who I had on the show. No, it's so much fun. Every single week that we interview different uh, guests and specialists and experts and sexperts and all different types of people, we learn something or sometimes lots of things during our one-hour interview. So did you find yourself growing um, exponentially as you started interviewing and coming up with different ideas for your podcast? Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I love doing it and why I still love doing interviews so much and uh, the the book I'm working on now, part of the motivation for me has always been, oh man, I just want to like have a, have a reason to relaunch the podcast and to be able to have a career where I can have conversations with whoever I want because it's really one of my favorite things is just asking questions and finding out more connecting with people that way. I know it's really amazing. Put us on your list. We'll be more than happy to be a guest on your show when you start it up. For sure. Thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you discovered the world of non-monogamy. We're going to talk a little bit about your book later, which is all about non-monogamy. And and what did you find so intriguing about this lifestyle? Sure, yeah. So I I guess, you know, I'd read Sex at Dawn and been, you know, raised in the Bay Area and gone to NYU. So I was 
around a lot of people who were kind of beginning to explore uh, certain forms of non-monogamy anyway. I was aware of it as a concept and I was even intrigued by it, you know, having floated threesomes to past boyfriends as maybe an easy entry point. But beyond that, I kind of felt stuck. It was like we'd both get turned on by the idea and then it would kind of fizzle out of like none of us knowing how you'd possibly even begin. Um, and then I met um, my now ex-partner um, and he told me on our second date before we even kissed that he didn't believe in restricting people he was with. And so I was like, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, I don't feel like you shouldn't be able to fall in love with other people, date other people. What's important to me is that any long-term partner I'm with, um, you know, if I make a life with them that I feel like I'm primary, like I'm the main person. Right. And so that was very scary, but also very intriguing to me because here was someone who been in non-monogamous relationships before, who I was very interested in, who was older than me, who seemed to really know what he was talking about and doing. And I thought, okay, this makes me really uncomfortable on some level, scared, but also excited and intrigued. And um, I think the immersion journalist in me has always been most interested in realms of the heart. And so this seemed like some of the most interesting territory I could throw myself into. Um, and with him by my side, I felt brave enough to try. Wow, that's cool. Now on your website, I saw the word um, immersion journalism. Mm -hmm. And is that kind of what you felt like you were doing? You're putting yourself, you're immersing yourself into a world that you were maybe you know, not so comfortable so that you can learn and expand and grow? Exactly. Yeah. And I, um, you know, the lines got very blurry for me in certain ways because it was like I was approached by an agent early on about the idea of writing about non-monogamy. Once I started um, writing about it on Bustle about a, a year in, I came out as being in, a, in an open relationship. And this was the way I was trying to understand my experience. You know, I was writing articles about the psychology of jealousy in an attempt to understand what was happening to me. Journalism is the way I've always kind of understood my own experience. But once that idea was floated, I, I'd certainly already been thinking, wow, maybe one day this will be, you know, I'll write a book about this. This had always been my dream. But that sort of threw it in as a possibility in real time. And I began recording my journey um, and, you know, thinking of my life as a book or as this story that had structure to it that I was both protagonist and narrative of was a very interesting, um, at times confusing, at times very empowering way to view myself in the world. Now, when you were growing up um, as a teenager or in your 20s, were you a sexually inquisitive young lady who wanted to learn about sexuality? Were you doing fucking the football team under the stands yeah. or were you this nice little prim and proper girl who did everything mommy and daddy said she was supposed to do? <laughs> I was a little bit of a late bloomer. I didn't um, date anyone until my senior year of high school. Um, so my pattern was always serial monogamy before uh, this experience that I would 
you know, date men. Um, my attraction to women was always there, but in the background and, and somewhat suppressed. Um, it kind of felt less pressing than my attraction to men. And as time went on, I felt um, like I'd missed the boat. I would kind of half-heartedly, you know, try on OkCupid to label myself different things, you know, heteroflexible, bisexual, <laughs> pansexual, queer. It didn't really seem to make a difference. Most of the women were like, I know what you are. You know, like I, I didn't know how to pursue it myself. And so I would go on a few dates and then it would fizzle out and go nowhere really. Um, and so I would kind of fall into a relationship with men and fall very in love and be very um, sexually open and exploring within that relationship, but also tend to feel um, rapidly kind of cramped by the idea of only being with one person, that one person for the rest of my life, of sort of knowing that no, you know, I think I put it in the book of like, knowing I could only kiss that one person, no matter how well that person kissed uh, for the rest of my life, potentially it seemed to always feel really claustrophobic as an idea. Um, and so I would start to feel, I think also because of incompatibilities, increasingly like restricted and resentful and then break up with them and then kind of fall into the next relationship. And, and by the time I met my ex, I was ready to try something different. I was 27. I was feeling on the one hand, um, the implicit pressure a lot of women feel to sort of get serious and find the one before my expiration date. Right. You know, <laughs> whatever. And uh, at the same time, I was like, I can't believe I've never had a threesome. I can't believe I've never been to a sex party. I can't believe I still haven't dated a woman. You know, all these things that I meant to get around to as a supposedly open and adventurous person that still haven't happened. No, that's a great story to, to hear all of those different things. Uh, I was just thinking while you were talking, do you have like any uh, role models of an open relationship? Did you see a successful uh, swinger couple in your peer group? Did you have, like, why did you really want to check off all those boxes? Mm. You know, that was one of my biggest mistakes was that at first I didn't have role models. I knew a couple people who were polyamorous and seemed pretty happy, but I wouldn't say they were role models for me, they seemed pretty different. We're more on the polyanarchist side and, you know, um, just didn't seem to struggle with jealousy. And I wasn't sure it was a model for me. No, it was more just something within me, you know, I was raised by a really uh, ex hippie mom and okay. you know, would later find out she had experiences with non-monogamy. And I was just sort of always, in some ways raised to be open to experience. So it's just something in me. That's very cool. Actually, after we discovered non-monogamy, I was already 42 and I discovered it. I, I figured out right away as I missed my calling. Like this is exactly my tribe. This is where I fit. This is where I fit in. And so I kind of get the feeling that this is where you fit in also. And that's kind of why you directed yourself into this uh, avenue is what I'm trying to paralleling a little bit but once you're there and you know it's where you want to be uh, it just feels right kind of and there's no turning back yeah yeah exactly yeah always yeah i mean the book details basically my odyssey through these different forms of non-monogamy and trying to see where did i fit in what am i you know what what would make me happy in the long term because um the more i interacted with people 
who define themselves as swingers or in the lifestyle, the more I felt, wow, I really do feel like I belong in certain ways and in other ways I don't. Mm. And same thing with people who define themselves as polyamorous. I felt, oh, there's certain things about this that really feel like me and other things that, that don't. And so, you know, even now as I continue working on this and meeting new people and thinking about it so much, I, I'm not sure what I would call myself except that I think I'll always want at different periods in my life some degree of openness to my relationships. Well, this is all great. We're just going to ask you to hold that thought as we remind everybody that we are Carol and David and we are talking with writer Rachel Krantz all about the world of non-monogamy. Just going to take a quick break for a commercial and we'll be right back. All right, so we want to tell you about a new product we've discovered that helps improve your sex drive and a whole lot more. We've been using Somaderm Gel for a few months now, and wow, what a difference it's made in our daily lives. Somaderm is a transdermal gel that naturally optimizes human growth hormone, HGH, and supports our body's stress response system, which we all need right now. From improved libido to better stamina and beyond, we've also noticed less joint discomfort, better sleep, and an overall feeling of well-being. Yeah, this amazing gel has improved our life as well as our sex life. And we all want better sex, right? So go to thesexylifestyle.com for more information about Somaderm Gel and order yours today because... Well, great sex matters and we all deserve it. All right, this is The Hito Show. We are Carol and David and we're having a great discussion with writer, editor, and all-around cool person Rachel Krantz as we continue our discussions about non-monogamy, and now we're going to get into her experiences when she was at Hito 2 in Jamaica. So, Rachel, first of all, tell us how you found out about Hito 2 before you even got there. What made what made you want to go there? Well, I found out because when you're um, in media, one of the biggest perks is that sometimes you um, get offers for press trips. And so Hito offered a press trip to certain editors and writers um, who worked at websites or wrote for websites that they or magazines they wanted to be known in. And so I was invited on a Hito Girls getaway of a, I think it was maybe a five-day trip um, and with this group of other women. And I was just, I remember getting it in my inbox and being like, oh my God, I really want to go to this. I hope my job let's me do this, please. And they did to their credit. And and so I got to go that way. Well, that's great. So set the stage for us, who you're with, what time of year, um, what your feelings were, what you had, you know, thoughts on what you were afraid of, and set the whole stage for us as you arrive at Hito Resort. Well, that first time was uh, very different than the the second time I went, um, which is the time I talk about more in the book with my uh, ex-partner for Young Swingers Week. But the first time for this Hito Girls getaway, my experience was really much more about the experience of um, being naked in, in public, so to speak, for the first time. I, I made out with, I think they had a, a group of male strippers uh, come and perform for us one night. Uh-huh. And I became friends with one of them and, ended up like making out with him. But other than that, I don't think I even really went into the playroom or interacted with that aspect of things much the first time around. It was much more about the experience of um, 
being naked for me and how liberating that felt. So we read your articles about that first experience there, and you really went explicitly into how you you were transformed by being there naked. And a lot of people don't understand that, and they think, ooh, I'd be so, uh, I don't know, uh, shy, and I wouldn't feel comfortable, and I would be insecure. But tell us about your experience about being naked for the first time in public. Yeah, so it was just, I remember, uh, well, first they kind of encouraged each of us or one of the girls started it. They took us out on a boat to go snorkeling and one girl took her shirt off. And then I remember we all started taking our shirts off and it just felt like after that had happened, we were all bonded in this way that felt so animal and natural. Um, There was this vulnerability that came with being naked in front of other people that assured a mutual respect I hadn't really expected. And, and that was what was so special to me about, you know, in particular, you know, here's this kind of magical place where there's a kind of mostly unspoken, although it's sometimes explicit code of conduct, conduct that says, you know, like, don't be a creep and yeah, make yeah. this a safe place for people to be naked. And, Sure, people look at each other, but it doesn't feel like they're going to encroach on your personal space or that if they were to come on to you and you, you know, weren't interested, that you can always say no thanks and they would go away. And if they didn't, you know, that, you know, there's people you could talk to and that, that there's really not a, a tolerance for that. So right. there's this feeling of the culture of the mini society you're in is one of total freedom and also with it like a real safety and respect. And that was such a, a revelation for me because I think intellectually I'd already known, okay, I'm not asking for it if I'm, you know, assaulted for wearing a risque outfit, but, you know, being raised in our culture, there's still a part of you that believes there is something inherently like dangerous about being naked, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in public, to do that, you would be asking for something terrible to happen to you. And it really just drove home to me of like, no, there's nothing inherently dangerous about my body besides maybe its potential power over over, you know, people who are attracted to it. But there's nothing that needs to be unsafe or dangerous. It's the society around it and the and the social norms we've constructed um to make certain parts taboo right. that creates that culture of danger yeah absolutely i can remember when i was a teenager and growing up i was topless i went to europe very often we went on the beaches there and in my backyard i would be topless very comfortable doing that but when i started going into swingers resorts i'm saying about 12 years ago when we started going to these different beach resorts and being naked in public uh, and taking off my bottoms it was a bit of a different story I was used to having my breasts shown, but I was not used to having my pussy out there for for full view. Let alone fucking public, being exhibitionist. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of recall in the very first time just, you know, taking it all off and um, and I was thinking that I would have some weird feeling. I was thinking that I would be afraid or somehow shy or not sure of myself. But I'm telling you, I took off my bottoms and within seconds of being at the resort, and I just I just knew that that's where I love to be. 
I spend as much of my time naked as possible. Even in a cold country where we live, I come downstairs in the morning naked, I have my coffee naked in the, in the living room yeah. with David, and you know, only get dressed when I have to. And I just love the world of just hanging out naked whenever I can. Totally. I, I feel the same way. And I think I knew that a little bit about myself. But yeah, going to Hito really made me realize it. And, and, and just also to drop a lot of things that I've been doing that I was like, why? You know, I, I remember after that, I switched from wearing bras with underwire to just wearing like bralettes or something because I, I have small breasts anyway. And I've been, you know, wearing bras to try to make them look bigger or more socially acceptable or I don't even know what and I, I remember afterwards I was just like why am I doing this you know this is not comfortable I'm restricting my breathing in some way that's totally <laughs> unnecessary like, yeah. I don't have to do this anymore and, and certainly pretty much anytime I'm, I'm home I'm if I'm in clothes it's ones that feel as close to naked as possible so yeah for some of us anyway it seems like something that's very very natural. Um, I mean, maybe for many people, but I think I would love to someday write a book about um, naturalists and around the world and, and see the common threads because it's so interesting, the crossover with the lifestyle and then also how for some people it doesn't cross over at all. Mm-hmm. It seems much more like um, something that's always been there inside them. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a, I have a inquiring minds want to know. So I read in your article, and Carol and I have been to Lifestyle and Swinger Resorts and Cruises for, like she said, 12 years, and we know that the majority of people do not have very much hair on their bodies, and you made a point of saying that you were the one there and you had full bush. So, like, what's what's that all about? What's my full bush all about? (laughs) Is it it Um, a statement you're making? Yeah, yeah. You know, I noticed that 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 was one thing I was going to say when I first went. I was like, oh, my God, I'm the only one with pubic hair in this entire place. I mean, I think I knew that that was a style, but I definitely realized that and came to learn in the lifestyle. It's particularly true that that women tend to be totally bare or, or maybe just have a landing strip. Um, for me, you know, it goes in phases. It's not that I have never, um, waxed or, or don't groom at all, but I, I've even written an article on, um, reasons to rock a full bush that, that still lives on bustle. That <laughs> I, is another favorite and really broke down all the reasons why it's, you know, in the same way as being naked, like our, our bodies are kind of made that way for certain reasons and it helps protect you against not just irritation but um, many diseases and infections it kind of serves as a way to uh, trap things that might make you sick and as a cushion against really hard fucking so there's a lot of reasons to enjoy a full bush and also I've realized that as it's become more and more of an anomaly um, it serves as a great litmus test for the kind of men I want to sleep with the ones who are really into pussy and and into uh i don't know just like strong women seem to really be into the novelty of seeing someone who actually has hair down there that's very cool but i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a little joke okay so the joke goes like this: what do you call a roman with hair between his teeth what do you what do you call him a gladiator (laughs) 
such an old joke, David. It's so funny. I had to. Oh, my god! I gosh. had to say yeah, it. Yeah, of course I you had, had to, to say, say it. it. Okay, back to so, keto. I, so one of your, one of the. Because I noticed a lot of the men do it, keto as well. And that was really yeah, exactly. A, a lot of men do shave oh, and trim. Shaving for sure. Yeah, and you would see a lot of well, very groomed men as well. But this just something that's common in the lifestyle. So in when you go to naturalist resorts, the there's hair everywhere and the armpits and, and well, full it's bush. everybody's choice. Yes, it's everybody's choice. But it is something that's common in the lifestyle. Nobody for, judges. Nope. This uh, is whatever. But it is something that we see often. The men having um, well groomed pubic hairs as well we want our cocks to look bigger and the <laughs> women always told us that you know with no pubic hair that your cock looks bigger it's true <laughs> so Rachel. Not, not look on on men at all but i i definitely did notice that it does work as an optical illusion <laughs> so are you saying that size matters rachel uh, you know skill matters more than size but i i'm not someone who pretends i don't like a big dick sometimes. Uh, yeah. And it's not that we need the big dick. It's just that we don't want to have the little weenie dick. That's all. In my world anyways. I don't need to have it, but I don't want that little one. I, w- I want to be able to feel it when it's inside me. That's for sure. Are you sure. happy with mine? Uh, yes, Dave. Yours is perfect. Perfect Very for me. That's for sure. Well, because I, I come with the one I have. It's not like a woman where I can get an enhancement and get bigger breasts. You absolutely can get an enhancement and get your, big, your dick done, but nobody wants to. you want me to get it. a bigger dick? No, thank oh, you, baby. No, okay. not at all. All right, good. So, Rachel, let's just let's just touch on a little bit about your second trip. Uh, give us uh, the set the stage for that trip and what you were expecting. Who were you with, and kind of what happened then? First, let's shout out to Brett and Young Swingers. Oh, We've sure. been there. Unfortunately, um, there was a bunch of Young Swingers trips that were canceled this year, and we're looking forward to seeing everybody in March 2021 for the re-engagement of everybody for Young Swingers Week. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, it was a lot of fun. I went um, with my ex-partner at the time, and or at the time partner, and um, you know it was hosted by Michael and Holly that time, um, and it was a, a large group in attendance. I think you know maybe a hundred people, and plus there were other groups there that week. The playful Pussycats, I remember, were there, mm-hmm. and also like a, a group doing a striptease uh training slash competition that was a lot of fun to see the results of um and that time it felt a lot different because it was a more people there that week and i definitely experienced the lifestyle dimension of keto much much more it was more about that than the experience of being naked no that's that's absolutely true and the thing is that you get a whole different perspective on your own um i guess limits or boundaries when you are with your partner and you are engaging in sexual activities in a place like that yeah and we've been to um several parties before that so it wasn't like it was my first time and actually by that time had already um had a threesome with a, a woman I had dated and uh, so I'd seen him be with someone else before and we were even going on dates separately. So in some ways it was kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to say not as advanced level, but maybe not as potentially triggering of jealousy as other certain situations. But um, I found that at first I still did have uh, a fear of jumping in. Um, I felt pressure 
um, to have experiences that was more maybe self-imposed, um, you know, and it, it took me a little bit to kind of relax and enjoy it. And at first, the first night, I think we had a, you know, like a bad fight, um, over me feeling like he was kind of pushing me to jump in and go in the playroom before I was ready. And him saying, you should just trust. I'm not going to push you to do anything you don't want to do. Um, and then I think by the, the second night we had resolved that and he sort of granted me, um, kind of a, a temporary swinger status, I would say, <laughs> yeah. of trying on that model where I was made to feel like I had veto power, I had um, primacy and control, stuff that wasn't really agreed upon in the relationship otherwise. And I found that within that, that kind of safety of that idea, I felt very open right away to kind of drive things as I wish. Now, we often talk about communication in a couple, especially uh, before any swinger activity that's about to happen, and just to sit with your partner and talk about what you expect, uh, maybe what limits and maybe where your boundaries fit or, or how you're feeling on that day. But I'm just thinking to myself that perhaps maybe you didn't have a full discussion about what you guys were going to expect at Young Swingers, and that's probably because you guys were not swingers before you went. Is that correct? Right, right. Um, yeah, we were not communicating consistently was one of the mistakes we kept repeating. Um, there was a lot implicit and, you know, as anyone who's been practicing any form of non-monogamy goes, knows that's really not a sustainable way to practice right. non-monogamy. There's so much communication that has to happen for both people to, to maintain a, a healthy, happy dynamic, I think. But also, you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes it's hard at the beginning in a swinger relationship to sort of set up the rules and the limits and what you're going to do, because you don't often know what you're going to expect, especially when it comes to jealousy, you might hope that you're not going to feel jealous, but sometimes it does. And earlier, you mentioned that you wrote a whole article on jealousy. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned? Sure. Um, that was a really interesting look where I talked with um, a counselor I ended up working with and talking to a lot, Kathy Labriola, who's an open relationship counselor. And she kind of broke down a lot of the different theories around jealousy, um, you know, Freud's theory, um, which kind of breaks down when we talk about jealousy, we kind of tend to mean it as like being synonymous with envy, but really envy is only one component of the feeling that we tend to term jealousy. So really within that there's envy, there's feelings of abandonment, there's feelings of loss, of a mourning something as existential as the idea that we could ever be enough for anyone fully, um, that we can hold on to anything in life. It's a real grieving feeling in a lot of ways uh, when we feel jealousy, this this sort of lack of having uh, the illusion of control <laughs> in a certain way. So um, I learned that. I also learned that, you know, jealousy is somewhat societally constructed. Um, evidence of that in terms of researchers, anthropologists who study it and find that around the world, rates of jealousy are much um, lower in societies that don't tend to 
view sex as a scarce resource or place as high of value on paternity or marriage, um, which makes a lot of sense, right? We're, we're trained to see relationships as proprietary. And so when someone else is with our partner, it feels like they're taking something from us that has a socialized, uh, almost material value. Um, it's a threat to our, our livelihood almost, um, or at least what we associate as our, our livelihood. So, um, you know, that made me start thinking about, wow, okay, is this jealousy I'm feeling something I've really just been socialized from a young age to feel through all the love songs that equate, you know, owning someone with loving them. And uh, if, if it is just a socialized feeling, could I maybe train myself through a continued exposure therapy to basically unlearn this response? And so that, that was a lot of the experiment I was undergoing in that relationship was seeing, could I basically decondition myself from having a jealous response? Well, that's very interesting. Actually, my experience in the lifestyle, especially at the beginning, was I was surprised that I was not jealous when I saw David fucking another woman or kissing another woman. And actually, I went to see a therapist, a sex therapist, and asked her, how come I'm not jealous? I thought maybe there was something wrong with me. And so um, I, she explained a little bit like what you were saying about what is jealousy and that it's a natural reaction. It's a natural feeling and that it does pop up. And she said, it probably does pop up for me as well. Um, but because I'm such in such a secure relationship and in feeling confident myself that I just kind of it comes up and I deal with it almost simultaneously as it as it appears and I'm okay with it so uh, yeah we all experience jealousy in a different way and that's just interesting uh, your experience was certainly very interesting yeah security is is a lot of it right of how you see when he granted me primacy or veto power I felt secure enough to then kind of go crazy for the rest of the week. Or I think about my current relationship where I feel very secure in a way I didn't uh, before and where perhaps he has less interest in, in being with other people. And I found that the fantasy then of, of seeing him with other women emerged almost immediately in a way it never had before. Um, and so I, I've really seen firsthand how um, feeling secure is very tied to how open I feel and how turned on I am by the idea of sharing and that what could have made me jealous in one relationship turns me on in another. Wow, this is all great stuff. Let's just take a second to remind everyone that we are Carol and David and we're having an amazing discussion with Rachel Krantz, who's a writer and one of the founding editors of Bustle.com. Coming up next is our favorite segment, Great Sex Matters. Stay tuned. Uh, we want, want to invite you to join us at Hito 2. We're going to hopefully be there in December 2020. And we're hoping that things are going to be getting back, not to normal, but the new normal is going to allow us to travel and go to our favorite resort in the world, which is Hito 2 on the Grill Beach in Jamaica. And in December, Hito is going to be celebrating with all their loyal guests. They're going to have some amazing rates, of course, their fantastic food, the amazing sexy entertainment the fantastic staff who want to welcome us home, and, of course, all the erotic and sexy people who are going to be there. And it's really going to be a feel-good, get-back-to-home vacation. 
Yeah, just visit our website, thesexylifestyle.com, to stay informed about all the sexy, open-minded events that are happening in your area and around the world. Alrighty, this is The Hito Show. We are Carol and David. Unfortunately, we are not broadcasting live on the Grill Beach in Jamaica. We're sitting here in our studio being quarantined like the rest of the world. We're going to do our favorite part of the show where we get to talk about great sex because... Well, great sex matters, and we all deserve it. As you know, this segment is all about the intimate lives of our guests, and we love to delve in deep and find out about their personal experiences relating to sex, sexuality, and their relationships. All right, Rachel, (laughs) you're up. So the first thing we want to know about is when... um, you decided to go to Hito the second time and you had these, um, I guess, ideas and thoughts about what it was going to be like. Tell us about those thoughts, about what you expected it to be and then what it actually was. I expected it to be interesting, which it was, to maybe be a little bit more of the feeling I had the first time, more about um, just being naked and, and free and and really found it, it was much more about meeting the other swingers much more social maybe than my first experience had been um which is makes a lot of sense and then you know when i went in the playroom i think that it felt uh like like a fun experience like something um that I experienced at other sex parties, more or less, in other playrooms, where it's a culture that, you know, affirmative consent is usually established pretty clearly, where there's people all doing their own thing, maybe you're being watched, or you're watching, Um, you know, if you're not interested, it's pretty easy to just say so, and it's not gonna cause a strange scene. So I think, in a lot of ways, it felt, pretty much like I expected and, and fun. Um, I think I was pleased to find that there were, you know, other people I found attractive there, um, who I was interested in. Um, and it felt all pretty casual, I would say, um, as a lot of those spaces tend to, where maybe there's the potential that you might, um, swap with someone you've hardly exchanged words with. At the same time as there's the potential during the day to have it be with people you talk to all day. Right. So now that you brought up the playroom, I was going to leave that to the end, but you brought up the playroom. So when you went in there, um, did you go in with your partner expecting to play with other people? Um, Not necessarily, no. I think that was was important to me that I felt like that didn't have to be something I was doing. Um, But I guess with that experience, time you know we were experienced enough that it was kind of like well you know <laughs> i think as i put it in the book um when we were at a sex party it's like when in roman orgy you know <laughs> like you kind of have that feeling of well i'm, I'm here you know I'm, I'm open to meeting other people but it can be a lot of fun just to be watched in itself for me um so it wasn't necessarily a given Absolutely. I mean, Carol and I are exhibitionists, and um, the amount of times that we go to events like this and we play with other people, our favorites are foursomes and morsoms, and the amount of time we go into a playroom and we just fuck ourselves and hope people are watching us or are going to tap us and say, can we join in? 
Um, the or they're just watching and playing with themselves. That's also fun. It is a lot of fun. And a lot of people don't realize that at Hedonism or on the cruises or at the other resorts, 50% of the couples who come there do not swing. They come for an erotic experience. They come to grow their couple, to push their boundaries, to fulfill some fantasies. And going in the playroom and fucking your partner in front of 20 or 30 or 40 other couples is, is it's super invigorating. Hot. Yes, it absolutely. It's sexually yeah. charged. You'll maybe do something or uh, or try something new that maybe that you have never done before just because you're feeling that the sexual energy from everybody else and listening to the sounds of sex, sex and yeah. everyone else enjoying themselves. Like that is so erotic and it's just, it's wonderful. I remember once Carol was sucking my cock. She was giving me an amazing blowjob, which she always does. But there was this other woman right next to her doing at her, the, the, the guy that she was with. And Carol's like, Oh, that's something new. I don't know that. And all of a sudden, she switches up and right. starts doing I, it I on wa- me. I was watching what yeah. she was doing using a technique that yeah. I had never tried. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And and, and we were communicating and she was showing me. I said, show me what you're doing there. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like learning something new at the same time. And David's there. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really great to emphasize. And um, something that I hope I make clear when I talk about Hito is even though I had these experiences... Yeah, I really just, I think it's something that anyone who's curious about it on their own or as a couple should explore, whether it just be the experience of being naked um, or, yeah, being in the playroom and having a sort of exhibitionist or voyeuristic experience. And if you're in a mature partnership where you can talk about these things and you can have boundaries about things beforehand and you don't feel like, um, oh, my my partner's going to pressure me to do things I'm not comfortable with, then I think it can be a really great way for so many couples to kind of explore the, um, the, you know, the, some of the juicy parts of, of non-monogamy or the lifestyle without having any real um, threat of jealousy at all. And, uh, you know, I think if you're worried that your partner is going to push you to do things that you're not comfortable with once you're there or, out that you're not playing with other people like that's a sign of other issues in the relationship Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. if you're in a mature partnership then you know i think michael said you go as fast as the slowest person yeah um i really like that idea and yeah i just think it's a great way that so many couples could have a, a really sexy experience without necessarily having to touch anyone else at all yeah, and we always like to say that there's no right way or wrong way to be in the lifestyle, and it's whatever works for your couple. That's the, that's what the guiding light is, whatever works for your couple. And within the couple, of course, you go by the slowest person with you. So I want to just touch on your book again. We have mentioned it several times. Why don't you start by introducing your book, what's the purpose of it, why you got started, and and how you're incorporating all these sexual experiences into your book. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, it's you know, the title is actually subject to change any week now, so I don't want to say what it is, unfortunately, yet. But um, by following me on, on Twitter and all that, you can find out. It's going to come out um, in summer of next year, 21. And it is the story of basically this uh, non-monogamous odyssey I went through uh, and the arc of the relationship I was in for four years um, and kind of 
is about much more than just non-monogamy, really. It's about my quest to explore, you know, what what does liberation mean to me personally? Um, how, how do I want to be in a long-term partnership? And sort of also is my journey intersecting with all these different people I, I meet and become friends with or date who are in all their own different ways um, exploring these same questions. And so it reads a lot like a memoir, um, but is contextualized throughout with with footnotes and and also just quotes and ideas woven in from all the research I've done over the years and all the interviews I continue to do um, around these questions. So you're sort of reading my story, hopefully like a sexy novel almost, um, but you're also learning a lot along the way about how my experiences emulate or illustrate larger trends and, as well. And in the book, do you get very descriptive of some of the um, life-altering sexual experiences that you had during your journey? Oh, yes. It's a, my, my goal is that it's going to be you know, something that really straddles the line between what's traditionally being called erotica and journalism mm. um, because, you know, that's what comes naturally to me. That's who I am, and I'm, I'm really... I don't believe that these sides of ourselves need to be segmented. I guess part of my statement is that I believe you should be able to take this seriously as a work of um, intensely researched and fact-checked journalism and also view me as a highly sexual being and know all kinds of details about my innermost sexual psychology and and uh, sexual blocks and the juiciest parts of the sex I was having. Um, you know, I, I really don't think these sides of ourselves need to be so segmented and that to be respected that you should have to present yourself as if you're only partially a sexual being. Um, so that's kind of my goal with the book is to blur the lines of these genres. Well, that's very cool and looking forward to it. And you mentioned that you made a whole chapter dedicated to this experience at Hedo during Young Swingers Week. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely an important part of the book. Wow. And we're coming to the end of the show. We've had so much fun talking with you, but we always want to leave with some final advice. So we're talking about now if a woman is thinking about going to hedonism, and we, I know you're very female-centric here, what do you think would be the top two things that she needs to know before either considering or before actually getting there? I would say the first thing is that, you know, at Hedo you should feel safe and if there's ever a situation where you where you don't feel safe for whatever reason or someone is you know um kind of coming on to you more than you want that you should know you're in a culture that really values consent and where you can speak up about that um to anyone around you or to the the managers it's going to be taken extremely seriously and at least for me i've never had an experience like that at Edo, so uh, know that first of all is that it's not it's not like you're hopefully going to go into a situation at least in my experience where you feel like oh my god I'm just like I, I'm having my boundaries violated or it's just uh, you know going to be kind of gross and with that safety I think the second thing I'd say is really to take advantage of that um, and to view it as a potentially really liberating experience you know I think I 
had I was supposed to go back um, before all this happened, and I'm, I feel like I hope to always go back every year, really, ideally, almost for a tune-up the same way I would <laughs> I like that. on a, a meditation retreat uh, periodically for a tune-up of my mind. Um, I feel like being in Hito, more than any other experience I've had, makes me feel accepting and loving of my body in a way that I just don't uh, experience or that can tend to fade otherwise. Because you see how everyone is there and everyone has a different body. And even the people who are traditionally, you know, very hot or what society deems hot, up close, they have flaws or, you know, things that could be deemed flaws too. And then the people who maybe on the outside would not be deemed, you know, the, the ideal body type by mainstream culture, you see these parts of them that are so beautiful emanating through. And it really just helps you accept your own body and love it in a, in a whole different way that I found very personally empowering to have really lasting effects in terms of how I felt about being in my own skin and how critical I can tend to be sometimes. Um, so I, I think for that reason alone, you know, if you have issues around accepting the way your body looks, that it can be a really liberating investment to make to experience just really facing that fear and bearing it in front of a group of strangers and watching as you're accepted and appreciated as you are. Wow, that was so well put. Thank you so much for sharing that insight. Not everyone can explain it as well as you and and the people who have been there probably have exactly the same sentiment. So thank you for sharing that great information. Thanks for giving me the chance to. And I think maybe what we'll do is next year before Rachel comes out with her book, we'll arrange to be at Hito together. We will do a show launching your book with you at Hito. Maybe you can read your chapter about Hito right there on the air. Maybe not read a chapter on the air, no. (laughs) Okay. But we can talk about the book and the chapter and celebrate with some nice uh, Jamaican uh, lobster and the great food from Chef Anthony and uh, Rachel. Yeah. Rachel will definitely be in touch. <laughs> we'll definitely be in touch and we want to be there and help you um, get your book out there and we love when people succeed um, in doing things that help people open their minds to help women say yes to great sex and to just be a very sex positive world out there. Yes, I love that idea. Thank you and I really hope that vision comes to reality. That would be so wonderful. What a way to celebrate. Absolutely. So Rachel, um, you know, we can keep talking for hours, but we're going to save that. Um, you've had some great information. You've, you've really enlightened a lot of people with respect to Hito and going there for first time, second time being a woman. Let's tell everyone now how they can find you online, social media, and eventually um, your book. Yes, thank you. Uh, this was so much fun. Well, people can find me um, just by my name on Instagram and Twitter at Rachel Krantz. Um, it's K-R-A-N-T-Z. And uh, yeah, if, if anyone listening can please take the second to follow me, you know, that would be actually really helpful. I'm, I'm not so great about being um, self-promotional and building my following, but it's something I need to start working on ahead of the book and you know, if I can have the support of my lifestyle community, that'll really help a lot. And I promise that as the book gets closer to coming out, there's going to be a lot more 
juicy things to follow on my social media and any new writing I do along the way, I also post to my, my Twitter. Um, so that's a great way to keep up with my writing. And uh, yeah, my, my website is uh, racheljkrantz.com. And that has a collection of a lot of my past articles on a wide variety of topics. So if you ever want to do a, a deep dive or contact me um, personally, you can do so through my website. And uh, Rachel's going to have a guest page up on our website, The Sexy Lifestyle, so you can go there and see everything as well. And we're learning yeah, more. Yeah, thanks. No problem. And we're learning more and more every week with all our fantastic guests, and we hope you do too. Just visit our website, thesexylifestyle.com, to find out more about our expert guests, and you can even contact them if you have questions about sex, sexuality, and relationships. And remember to stay sexy, everyone. Stay healthy and follow all the suggested protocols issued by your local health authorities. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Practice social distancing. But just stay home if you can. And please continue to listen to our show. We have lots of amazing guests. And visit our website, thesexylifestyle.com. And if you have any questions at all, you can always send us an email at ask at carolyndavid.com. Well, that's it for our show today. A special thank you to our guest, Rachel Krantz. Thank you. And especially to everybody out there who's at home in quarantine, trying to get things together, trying not to have fights with their exes or with their spouses. <laughs> Please. Just, just, you know, stay happy, everybody, and keep listening to our show. And join us again next time for another hour of The Sexy Lifestyle, talking about sex, sexuality, and all the fun ways to spice up your sex life. And remember, stay sexy. Stay happy, healthy, and horny. Stay safe. And please, as much as possible, stay home, everyone. Until next time. Thank you for joining Carol and David for this week's edition of The Hedonism Show. We've got another one lined up next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is just around the corner, so try something new, spice it up, and you just might have the best sex ever.